welcome to the Real Estate Investing Made Simple podcast, the show empowering and educating people on how they can grow, manage, and protect their wealth through real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Bailey Kramer. What's going on, everyone? And welcome back to another episode of the Real Estate Investing Made Simple podcast. Today, we are joined by the one and only Fernando Angelucci. He's a self-storage investor. He's bought more than $50 million worth before he turned 30 years old. We have a lot to talk about. So without further ado, Fernando, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super excited. And we were just chatting a little bit before the show. We realized that we're only about an hour, hour and a half apart right now. So kind of cool. But um, yeah, give us a little background about yourself. Uh, This is our first time we're meeting um, on Zoom. So tell us kind of who you are, how you grew up, and uh, you know how you got into self-storage. Yeah, so uh, I'm the son of two immigrants from Brazil. They kind of had the old school American dream uh, kind of in store for me. They wanted me to get good grades, go to school, get a good degree, and then retire with a pension at a Fortune you know, 500 company after 40 years of working there. So that was all good until uh, I picked up Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was 16 years old. And when I ran through that book, I started to realize that the real way to build wealth was to acquire income generating assets and to use leverage. So <clears throat> went to my parents, said, hey, I don't know if college is right for me, to which they countered saying, you know, over my dead body. So I, <laughs> I did go to school, went to University of Illinois, uh, graduated with an engineering degree and actually did get a job at a Fortune 50 company with a pension. Um, but while I was there, I really started to hate my life. So um, immediately started investing in single family homes about six months in to that job. And within 13 months, I had replaced my income. So I decided to quit and go at it full time. Because if I was able to do that, you know, with weekends and, and burning the midnight oil, you know, I'd get home from work, eight, nine o'clock, and then work till maybe midnight or 1am and then start all over again, then imagine what I can do if I spent, you know, full time at this. So from there, I started uh, doing first single family wholesale deals. And then gradually went up to fix and flip. And then decided, okay, now I got enough of a nest egg or not a nest egg, but enough of a down payment reserve to start acquiring assets that cash flow. So I started buying multifamily properties, single family properties, kind of in multiple markets. And then, you know, I, I thought I was doing the right thing. And, you know, in all the books you read about passive income, but I was spending 40, 50, 60 weeks or 60 hours a week on my, you know, so-called passive income. It didn't feel very passive to me. So at that point I realized I needed to, to change. And I started looking at what are the biggest time sucks and what are the the biggest reasons why I'm, you know, feeling so stressed. And it came down to basically three things, tenants, toilets, and trash, right? (laughs) So from there, I decided, okay, what asset can I go into where, you know, those things are either mitigated or completely removed from the equation. And that's when I found self-storage. Gotcha. Um, Self-storage has been really great for me. As soon as I found that, we started investing maybe... 2018 into storage sold all my multifamily all my single family buildings and went full bore into that and uh, since then have done a little over 50 million in self-storage grew very quickly 
and I'll jump into some of the reasons in a second here why I was able to grow so quickly in this industry. Um, and now we're, you know, we're doing three separate types of self-storage investing. So we will do buy and hold where we'll go out and find mom and pop in, you know, operators, buy properties from them and increase the management efficiencies, increase the income, drop the expenses, and then refinance all of our cash out. On the opposite side of the spectrum, we'll build these large, like extremely large class A REIT grade facilities, so real estate investment trust grade facilities that are 100, 150,000 square feet. They're anywhere between 10 to $15 million per project. Um, and a subset of that is these conversion projects where we'll buy big box retail stores like old Sears buildings, Walmarts, Kmarts, and then convert them into storage. And then the last, gotcha. ask, the last avenue is we, because we have such a large marketing engine for the self-storage company, we also wholesale self-storage facilities, uh, wow. get them under contract. They may not be right for us. They may be too small and we'll sell, sell them off to other investors that are either getting started or have different buy box criteria. Wow. That, that, that's super interesting. And I want to dive into those four different strategies you do. And then also the reasons why you like self-storage besides just there's no tenants in the toilets that you mentioned before, but real quick, going back to your story, because a, a theme that I heard is you move. It seems like you move pretty fast. Once you, once you <laughs> go towards something, you move fast. So you mentioned you got your, you got your W2 job out of college and about a year later you were able to basically quit and go full-time in real estate. Right. So yeah. what, I'm just, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but was your strategy in the beginning wholesaling single family? Correct. Yeah. So okay. the reason we started with wholesaling was because the amount of capital needed to start that business is minimal. You can start the marketing without a lot of dollars out of pocket, you know, just doing a lot of sweat equity. And then you could pull some pretty big checks. So in the beginning, I was pulling, you know, 10, 15, 20 grand per property as I was getting started. Towards the end of my wholesaling career, I was pulling down 50, 60, $70,000 wow. checks per property. So that's, that builds up your, you know, your cash reserve. And then you take that cash reserve and then put it into cash flowing assets because wholesaling, it's great to start off with. But it's just another job, right? It, right. You, know, you have to, if you don't wake up and do the work, you stop getting paid. Whereas with passive income, you do the work once, and then it pays you until you sell it. Right. Very cool. And it, it's cool because you, you you started wholesaling single family. That's how you got into it. But now that's also just another tool in the tool belt of yours that you still do now with self storage. So that's super cool. So okay. let's transition. Tell us why self storage. Everyone's pitching all these different asset classes. I'm a fan of Airbnb, short-term rentals, people like multifamily, people like mobile home parks. Why self-storage? Yeah, so there's there's nine main reasons why I love self-storage. I'll run through them real quick and then I could dive deeper into each one. So the nine are, it's got the highest return of any other asset class. Number two is that it's recession resilient. Number three is that you get really great leverage. Number four is easier management. Number five, it's, it's a fragmented market, which creates opportunity. Number six is that it has low break-even occupancies. Number seven is that there's easy evictions. And I'll cover that in depth here in a little bit. Number eight is that it has a very high sticky factor. And then number nine is that you can create multiple ancillary profit centers from one storage facility. So if you want, I could just dive into it right now. Yeah. So number... Yeah, go ahead. Do you have any well, questions? I was, was going to say, there, there's a few key ones that I want to jump into. So yeah. you mentioned leveraging. You mentioned mm -hmm. multiple streams of income. And there's one more in there that I'm forgetting. Um, 
But what, what, what I think it would be super helpful is let's go through kind of the process from start to finish of actually buying a cell storage. Um, and obviously you mentioned you have different exit strategies. You could wholesale. Um, but I guess something that's, I think, common that everyone can relate to, no matter what asset class they're out, they're out for, is finding a either distressed or mom and pop owner, fixing it up and either refinancing it or holding it whatever the case may be. So I guess let's start from the beginning of you guys finding a mom and pop self-storage facility. How do you guys, from the marketing perspective and the actual criteria that you're looking for, how do you guys come up with that? Yeah, so it's interesting. And self-storage, because it is such a great asset class, especially on the cash flow side of things, it's very difficult to find, you know, quote unquote, distressed sellers there's not really distress in self-storage <laughs> so the the real key is to find operators that are not let's say sophisticated or professional maybe they, they don't have marketing strategies maybe they are not doing competitor analysis so their rates are much lower than market maybe they have a ton of expenses because you know they're just paying somebody full-time to run it when they could be leveraging automation so what we're typically looking for on the mom and pop side are facilities that have a good cash flow going in. They don't have to be phenomenal. That has the ability to not only raise income by raising street rents, raising um, any type of fees associated with it, as well as also putting additional streams of income, such as selling box box, moving supplies, uh, tenant insurance, billboard advertisements, cell towers, things like that. The second piece of that is dropping the expenses. So because self-storage is a commercial asset, that means that it's valued based off of cap rate, which is your net operating income divided by your purchase price, as opposed to sold comparables. So if I can increase my net operating income each month, that's going to increase my total valuation of the property. So on the expense side, I'm always looking to drop you know, number one, labor costs. That's going to be a huge piece of self-storage. Number two is going to be property taxes. So there's multiple strategies on how to drop your property taxes. Um, you could split up the purchase agreement between goodwill and, um, you know, improvements in land. You can hire a tax attorney to go ahead and contest the, the property taxes if they're being leveraged too high on you. Um, other things like getting proper insurance quotes. A lot of people that operate storage facilities that aren't as sophisticated, they'll just call the guy that gave them car insurance and home insurance to get their self-storage facility. But <laughs> that's not the right guy to get self-storage insurance from because self-storage has much less liability on the owner uh, than other assets. So right. the way that the leases are written and the way that the state laws are written, a lot of the liability falls on the tenant themselves. You know, they have to have renter's insurance. They can't store over a certain, you know, value of goods in their unit. And because of that, that leads to less claims and less loss, which means that your premium should be lower on a yearly basis. Right. Uh, property management, right? That's another expense that we can drop as opposed to paying one or two full-time people 40 to $80,000 a year. You can leverage technology that allow customers to rent online, rent on their phone, rent on a kiosk outside of the facility. Uh, without ever having to interact with a person that is being paid an hourly or salary wage. Right. Super cool. So basically, you know, in a nutshell, you guys are targeting people that just aren't maximizing and that aren't as sophisticated and knowledgeable and efficient as, as you guys are. So that's super cool. Right. Yeah. And 
that's just the non-physical value add, right? right? We can also do, once we, we do that portion of the value add, then we go into the capital expenditures where we can, if there's additional land on the property, we can put up additional units or even portable modular units that we can move around with forklifts. We can go down the street and find other lots, you know, lots of land that are for sale, buy those and put up additional units once we get up to stabilization. So there's multiple ways to add value on these. And then another way that's a little bit more, ex, you know, experience level is to buy multiple facilities, put them into portfolios and then sell them. The reason why is when you're buying these smaller facilities, you're selling to investors that want to buy smaller facilities. So the cap rate goes up, you know, you're paying less for that facility on a per square foot basis. But then if you can get the aggregate purchase price or sale price in this case, to something that's maybe above 10 million or $15 million. And all of a sudden the cap rate drops one or 2% because there's now a premium for selling a large portfolio. And instead of going right. out to smaller investors, mm-hmm. you're going out to more regional or institutional players that want to take that down. They have ready cash and their yield requirements are much lower than say someone like me buying. Right. No, that's a great point there. And it's something that uh, I think it's true for pretty much any asset class is that idea of, you know, these big, these big players, they want to buy big or, you know, a lot at a time. So by doing a strategy like that, I've heard a lot of people had great success with that. Yeah. So in, I guess, the world that I'm coming from with single family and some multifamily, there are, you know, to find off-market deals, that's the name of the game, at least for us. What we do is we pull up either PropStream or CoStar, we pull data and either we cold call, we send letters, all that good stuff. Is that kind of the same for self-storage or how do you guys kind of go about targeting your off-market deals? Yeah, it's, it's almost identical. So we took our residential wholesaling business and we just slightly tweaked it to start going after self-storage facilities. So what worked for the best for us is pulling down lists. We usually, self-storage is not a list that you can just go online and go through like a core logic to buy. You have to usually go through some type of, you know, boutique data provider you got to tell them exactly what you want you got to work with them it's a back and forth type thing so we'll pull these lists of self-storage owners across the markets that we're targeting and then we start sending them letters uh we'll skip trace them and get all their contact information start cold calling them um we'll drive by their facilities we'll stop in you know drive for dollars just say hey you know, are you the owner? Are you the manager? Would your owner be willing to sell? Here's my card. So it's just the same, basically the same avenues you'd use for single and multifamily we use on the self-storage side. Okay. One of the things that's very interesting on the self-storage industry is that there is such a huge delta. There's such a huge difference in between going on market and off market. The same property on market through a broker may sell for four and a half or 5% cap rate with a pro forma of anywhere between seven, seven and a half, where off market, I'm buying these things at, you know, seven at a minimum day one, all the way up to 12% cap rate day one, and then doing, you know, 200, 300 basis point value add before either refinancing or selling. Got it. Okay. Very cool. So very similar to single family and the multifamily world of marketing strategies, driving for dollars. Love that part. So now you approach a seller and something you mentioned in your list of, I think there were nine pros to self-storage was the financing piece. Yeah. So talk about the different financing pieces, strategies you guys can leverage that might be different than um, single family or multifamily. Yeah. So it's, it's not necessarily that it's different. It's just 
lenders, they, they like storage much more. And the reason why is when you look at the last 30, 35 years, you'll notice that the default rate on storage is so much lower than multifamily or office building or you know, single family even to the, to the magnitude of anywhere between like four to 15 times lower default rate. So because of that, lenders are going to offer better rates, better leverage to appeal to those types of investors to bring in more of those loans and balance their portfolio on a risk adjusted basis. So for example, I can get loans as low as 10% down through the SBA, the small business administration. And the SBA is for the single family world, an SBA loan is similar to an FHA loan. So a lot of documents, they're going to want full tax returns of both you and the seller. So sometimes that's not an option because of, you know, maybe the seller does not have good tax returns or maybe that they're, um, they're maybe taking a bunch of cash and not reporting it on their taxes. So they're unwilling to give you tax returns. So When that's the, the issue, then you have to start going to some other sources. So just like in the single family and multifamily world, we have hard money lenders. Well, they'll lend to us based off of the asset themselves, um, based off of the new value that we can bring it to. And that will allow us to get to you know, higher leverage points and close faster. And then eventually, you know, take it down to the hard money loan, do the value add over the next six to 12 months, and then refinance into a longer term loan. So that's what the, the first piece. The second piece is using kind of local banks as a bridge. Local banks really love this type of product and they show it with their rate and terms. We can get, you know, anywhere between 75 to 85% LTV on a, um, on a bridge loan from a bank for three to five years, do the value add, maybe bring a few properties in the portfolio. And then the end goal is to move into the CMBS market or the commercial mortgage backed securities market. So what the CMBS market does is they, they'll send out a bunch of loans, they'll wrap like a billion dollars worth of loans, and then they'll sell it to Wall Street. And because once they sell it to Wall Street, these loans are much cheaper. So I can come in and I can get a 10 year fixed loan with all the way up to 10 years interest only on a 30 year amortization schedule. And I'll be floating anywhere between the 2.65% interest rate all the way up to like 4.1%. Wow. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty good. And what, what kind of rates were you getting for, or could you get on the smaller local banks for the bridge loans? Yeah. So the local banks are also going to be in that same that same range where they're going to be probably 4% all the way up to maybe 5.75%. The difference is with the local banks is typically a five-year balloon as opposed to a 10. And as opposed to being amortized over 30 years, it's amortized over 20 to 25 years. Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. So you're targeting these properties. You have great financing options in place, it sounds like. Um, And now comes, I guess, the value add part. That's the biggest component, especially, you know, getting these shorter bridge loans, got to add some value to the properties. So talk about kind of the the revenue streams from self-storage, because um, like I said, a lot lot of my listeners, we're coming from the single family world and might not know much about uh, self-storage. Yeah. So, you know, in the single family world, you only got maybe a few streams of income. So you can get rent, you can maybe charge for a garage or parking, and then maybe some laundry income. If you have some coin laundry, 
in self-storage, we have, yeah. yeah, exactly. In self-storage, we have multiple streams of income. So we can do, on top of renting the units, we can do car storage, RV storage, boat storage. We can sell locks. We can sell renter's insurance and keep a portion of the premium. Uh, moving supplies, packaging materials. We can have FedEx boxes, printing services, um, scanning services. We can have cell towers on our site that produce income pretty steadily, billboard advertisements. We can do like boutiques type of storage, like wine storage. Uh, we can also operate truck rentals, um, private mailboxes, propane filling, ATMs, vending machines, fingerprint scanners. So there's all these different wow avenues that you can add in there. And so gotcha. to take a step back, when we look at some of these facilities, what's typical is we're buying a facility from typically someone that is between 60 to 90 years old. This is probably their second or third time that they're retiring. Uh, they usually don't operate it as their main business. It's usually a secondary business or a hobby of sorts because they had extra land. Um, and they're not being super diligent on their rental collections and their, their, and their auctions or their evictions, if you will. So in the self-storage world, there is no such thing as evictions. It's lien law as opposed to um, rental landlord tenant law. So if when someone puts their stuff in one of my self-storage units, they're automatically giving me a lien in the amount of you know, whatever the rent or whatever it is. And so the second that they stop paying, I'm able to actually exercise my lien and auction off their facility or auction off their unit to collect any back to rent or fees that I may have. So when we walk into these facilities, here's what I'm typically seeing. There's a ton of back to units that have not paid in a long time. They keep giving the owner these stories. They're kind of buddy, buddy. <laughs> So the owner doesn't want to be, you know, super diligent on right. charging late fees or, or auctioning off units. So number one thing I do when I walk in is we're going to immediately start working out plans of the people that are behind saying, Hey, I'm the new, new owner in the next week, you have to call me and let me know how you're going to pay this either on a payment plan or pay it all together or else I'm auctioning off your stuff. And I've already overlocked your unit. So you can't get access to your stuff until you either pay or, you know, put together a payment plan. The next thing is looking at the vacancy. So, so a lot of the times these facilities won't have any marketing whatsoever. I mean, to the point where you can't even find them on Google. You can't find them on, you know, any websites. The only way that you'd know that they existed is if you drove by them, which is a terrible way to market. So we'll set up a website that allows people to rent right from the website. We'll claim a Google My Business page so that it shows up on Google Maps searches and on Google uh, search uh, results. And then we'll also pay for aggregator sites like uh, Sparefoot, where you go in and they'll show all the available units in an area and then it's kind of like a bidding system for the owners. That's cool. So that's the marketing side of it as far as getting the things filled. The next part of the value add, like I said, is dropping all the expenses. And a lot of that is done prior to closing on the property. Some of it is done after closing on the property. And then expansion potential in the end, uh, making sure that we can increase the value by either adding units or increasing the grade of the facility, right? If I buy a class C facility, it's let's say drive up self-storage with no security fences, no gates, no um, cameras or security lights. 
Maybe it's not paved. We'll do all those things as well on the physical improvement side. So we'll pave it, we'll add fencing, gates, we'll uh, put security cameras, keypad entry and exit so I can track people going in and out and then offer storage 24 hours a day. So all these things will help me go from like, say, a class C facility to a class B facility. And that will gotcha. drop the cap rate that I'm valued at or where I can sell it at. Gotcha. Okay. W one quick thing I want to go back to. You mentioned dropping expenses. Um, obviously, when you buy the property, you're always working to, to lower expenses. You also mentioned lowering expenses before you buy the property. Can you kind of right. talk about that and, and how, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah. So for example, like I said before, you know, when you go to purchase, let's say I'm buying a million dollar facility, as opposed to saying, here's a purchase agreement for a million bucks. I say, Hey, so I'm going to actually give you two purchase agreements. I'm going to give you one purchase agreement for 600,000 for the land and all the improvements thereon, And then I'm going to give you another purchase agreement for 400,000 for the business, the business goodwill and all the business assets, like the phone, the number, the brand name, things like that. The property tax assessor in almost all counties in the United States, not all of them, but most can only levy a tax against the building, the improvements in the land. They can't tax, they can't put property taxes on the business and the goodwill. Now there are some uh, counties in more, uh, more difficult to deal with states, such as California, uh, areas around Chicago, where they will make you file some type of <laughs> exemption that you have to pay taxes on the full value of the right. purchase, regardless if it's land and improvements or goodwill and business. Other things is, you know, doing your work ahead of time on property taxes. So not only splitting the purchase price, but then immediately engaging a tax attorney to contest those taxes. And then uh, insurance, making sure that when we go and we start getting insurance quotes that we can usually get it lowered by 30, 40% because we go to a self-storage specific insurer, uh, property insurer, as opposed to say some guy that from State Farm that just does your single <laughs> fan, you know, it does your home right. and your car. <clears throat> right. Okay. Super, super cool. I'm already learning, learning a ton of little nuances, but then self-storage, this is awesome. So, wow. where do I go from here? So on the buying side, you mentioned just like how in, in a single family, multifamily residential, there's different asks. There's a, there's a B C and they go to right. down to D. <clears throat> so I'm curious to know kind of your buy box as far as not only just the class of the product, but also, um, you know, do you look for a certain population or population growth or, you know, what, what's your criteria when actually looking to buy um, a facility? Yeah. And you know, as a lot of things in real estate, it depends. So right. What I'll break it apart into is what we do versus what you should do as your first time, you know, if it's okay. your first facility, because we have enough experience now where we can go into areas and markets where a first time buyer will get crushed. But because we have sp speed of implementation, we know how to operate, we have connections in the industry, we can still make a lot of money off of those. Right. So let's go on the grading, for example. So class A facilities, you as an individual investor will probably never buy these because you're competing against large institutional REITs. And the breakdown of the market is as such that it's extremely fragmented. So here's what I mean by that. There's roughly 70, 72,000 self-storage facilities in the United States. 18% wow. of those facilities are owned by the six largest REITs, real estate investment trusts. These are names that you know, U-Haul public storage, extra space, CubeSmart, right? 
those are the guys that are buying the class A's and the class B pluses. That's 18%. Then there's another 9% or so that are owned by the next 100 largest operators. I'm one of those 100, right? So that means that there's still like 70, 72% of the facilities out there that are owned by mom and pop investors where they own two or fewer investors or two or fewer facilities. So when you're looking at class A, you're never gonna buy those. Later on in your career, you can start building them and selling them or building them and keeping them. But in the beginning, you're never gonna buy that just because you're gonna, you're gonna be competing against people that are buying at a 5% right. cap rate and that doesn't make sense for you. <laughs> then you have your class B. So your class B is gonna have I guess I should de describe what a class A is. Class A is a multi-story facility that is all almost 100% climate control. It has all the latest technology. It's got security, multiple points of entry, multiple points of security blocks. I mean, it's you see them all around. They look like beautiful office buildings, right? Yeah. A class B facility is going to be one that has maybe in front, it has a one or two-story climate control area interior access with all the security that you'd expect from a class a but then in the back it's going to have a bunch of these drive up non-climate control facilities or drive up maybe a little bit of climate control then you have your class c's where you can make a lot of money in your class c's are typically going to have no uh climate control whatsoever it's going to be all drive up it may be paved it may be gravel it may not have a lot of security it may have maybe like a fence but that's about it um and then you're going to have your class D. The class D we stay away from completely. So like when in your class A, everything's built out of concrete and steel. Um, your class B is going to be a mix of that. Your class C is going to be like corrugated steel on concrete pads. And then your class D, which is like the first generation of self-storage, is usually going to be built with cinder block. It's going to have shingle asphalt roofs <laughs> as opposed to, you know, metal seam roofs. We don't like those types of facilities because the maintenance is astronomical. And over time, especially if you're in an area that has a freeze thaw cycle, that cinder block is going to degrade pretty quickly. So with that being said, I, and I, not only myself, but I recommend even first timers never do class B or class D assets. You know, these things are going to have swing doors. They're going to just look really nasty gravel <laughs> or maybe not even gravel. Maybe it's just grass and mud. Um, your class C is where I'd recommend getting started. So class E facilities, this is where you can get a pretty high cap rate, but it's still made out of really good materials, right? Concrete pad, corrugated steel walls and roof. You have the, the metal corrugated rolling doors that are easy to maintain. Um, and then those are the ones where you have the opportunity to do a lot of value add on. Same thing with the class B. The class B, if you can find them at a good deal, which is tougher and tougher in this market, it's a good thing right. to take those down. Right. So as far as, requirements for what we like to buy or what I recommend somebody buy in the beginning is you want to go somewhere, especially for your first deal, you want to go somewhere that doesn't have too much hair on it. You want to, because your first facility is where you're going to learn basically 80% of what it is to be a self-storage investor. So at that point, what you're going to want to do is find something that maybe it's got a decent amount of occupancy. It doesn't need to be completely full, but maybe 70% or above. Um, it's in a good area that has maybe a population of, you know, 40,000 people or more, maybe even down to 25,000 people or more would be good. Um, you're going to want median incomes in the 45,000 plus range, maybe $40,000 plus range for your first deal. 
and then have the ability to either expand or do some type of value add, but not too much hair on it. Yeah. Once you start getting more sophisticated, then you can start going into markets that say have no job growth or population growth or negative job growth and population growth um, that have the ability to get in, do some heavy value add, where maybe it's 40% occupancy and everybody's delinquent, turn those things around and almost kind of flip them, you know? So those are not areas that you want to hold in long-term, yeah. but they're great to come in, do the value add, and then sell it to somebody else. Interesting. So is that something you actually buy places that are losing population growth at a pretty dramatic oh, yeah. rate? Yeah, we've made a ton of money in markets like that. So <laughs> walking into, a, you know, because everything's based on net operating income, right? So if I can right. come in and buy something at a seven cap at 40% occupancy, and then get it all the way up to 90% occupancy, increase rents by 20%, drop expenses by 20% and sell it, I can double or triple my money in 18 months. Wow. But I will never hold those properties as retirement properties. Right, right. <laughs> All right, cool. So the next piece I want to kind of talk about is the management side. Again, going from the single family and the multifamily world, there's typically, at least for the multifamily side of things, there's a certain amount of units you need to have in order to have an on-site property manager, or at least make it somewhat worthwhile. If you have a duplex, yeah. you're not having an on-site property manager. It wouldn't make sense for the numbers. So talk in terms of self-storage, um, I guess the management side, on-site manager, all that good stuff. Yeah. So I'm one that typically likes to leverage technology. So we try to get away with never having an on-site manager. It gets to the point where you are large enough where it, it may make sense or the, the classy asset may make sense. So typically at stabilization, if your facility is bringing in 20 to $25,000 a month in revenue, then it makes sense to have someone that's on-site. But below that, not only is it difficult to find managers versus the amount that you have to pay them as a percentage of income, but it's just not, ne it's not necessary because the, the flow, you know, self-storage isn't like single family or multifamily where there's constantly stuff going wrong and people needing help with things. With self-storage, it's you move your stuff in and then hopefully I don't see you for 10 years, right? right? You leave it in there and that's about it. There's not much that can break or go wrong. Like I said, it's concrete and steel. You know, there's no furnaces, there's no water heaters, there's no leaky roofs, it's all steel. So it's not a big deal. Um, so in those type of situations, what we'll get is typically what we call a CPO, a chief pretty officer. They are kind of like a maintenance person plus, you know, so they do general maintenance around the facility, but they also, when needed, they can put overlocks on units, they can remove overlocks on units. Um, if there's someone that maybe doesn't want to use technology or is technology, you know, inept, they can help meet them up and show them how to do that. But for the majority of customers, everything's done through a call center. Their unit will be ready on a certain date. They can, it'll be unlocked. Uh, they'll either will leave a lock in the unit or they can bring their own lock as long as it's one of the ones that is approved by us. So pretty, I mean, it's, it really isn't difficult at all. Um, it's, it's a business where you just try to keep it as simple as possible. Right. And that's going to help you really make a lot of money. Um, especially when it comes down to like the difference between managing multifamily and single family um, right. storage. I can manage the same amount of, let's say dollars in value. Let's say I had $10 million in multifamily and $10 million in self-storage 
it would take me maybe one fifth or one eighth the amount of time and effort to manage that same amount of storage wow. versus multifamily. Wow, that's pretty pretty wild. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's cool with, with the technology, which is a piece I want to get into in a second. But one thing that popped in my mind was if you're selling locks, you're selling boxes, and all these little value adds. I guess who takes care of the transaction piece of that if you don't have someone in store? Yeah, so with those types of revenue streams, we usually reserve those for the larger facilities, the class B and class A facilities. Yeah. Um, typically on the class C facilities, I those types of value adds will cause there to be more labor. So in the end of the day, it's almost a wash because the amount of extra labor costs you have to pay to get that extra income just offsets and then it just makes more headaches. So I'm usually reserving like the physical goods side of things for, you know, class A or class B, or if I have a regional portfolio where I have maybe three or four facilities within a hour, hour and a half radius, then maybe I'll have one manager that handles all four facilities for me. And then they can sell out of one office or have people come to one office to get those things. Got but it. what we'll do is we'll, we'll put in other types of income uh, profit centers from those unmanaged facilities. So gotcha. selling it, you know, tenant insurance, I could do that all through a computer and we get to keep anywhere between 60 to 80% of the premium on a monthly wow. basis. Um, I'll put up billboards so that we can rent out those billboard advertisements to uh, anyone that wants to use those. And that's steady income. Um, Cell towers. If there is a gap in coverage, we can put a cell tower on our site if we have enough footprint available for it. And that pays us a steady monthly income on typically pretty long leases, five or 10 year leases. So there's other ways, you know, we don't try to do all of those profit centers that I mentioned before at every facility, just we look at what makes sense on an NOI standpoint, not on a revenue standpoint. Right. Got it. Okay. Very cool. So the the next question I have about self-storage is the branding. So, you know, everyone, the the big companies you mentioned, um, like extra storage, um, what's the one, the the orange, the orange looking one? Public. public, Yeah, public. So all these like name brand self-storage facilities, like you said, they own 18% of the existing facilities and they're very well recognized. So what do you guys do as far as branding? Do you have, um, you have your own name that you use on all your properties and you almost, you know, are growing that brand across the country or kind of how, how do you take the branding standpoint? Yeah. So it depends on the size of the facility and the markets that you're in, right? So if you're building a class A facility, typically you don't brand it, uh, your own uh, facility, unless your goal is to build up a portfolio of class A facilities. So what we'll do, like we're building one right now, it's 140,000 square feet. We already know that the person that's going to buy this is most likely going to be one of these REITs. So what we'll do is we'll bring them in as a third party manager, and then we'll brand it under their colors and their name. So that when we go to sell, they're hopefully the most likely the ones that will make the highest offer because they have the most history and data around the property. So that's how we do it on the large side. We'll brand based off of the buyer that we know is going to come in or one of the buyers that we think will come in. Um, On the smaller facilities, we actually like to brand based off of the location. So for example, I buy a property in, you know, Milwaukee. 
in, or maybe in the outskirts of Milwaukee and I'll name it like Milwaukee self-storage or even better example is if you're in like a smaller area. So say for example, my very first facility I bought was in Yorkville, Illinois. So I branded it Yorkville self-storage because the very first thing people are going to do is when they're looking for storage, about 60% of the population is first going to go to here. They're going to go onto their phone right. and they're going to type in self-storage in Yorkville. So the SEO, the way it works, just naturally Yorkville self-storage is going to be either at the top or close to the top of the search results. Right. Okay. Super cool. And if, and in the cases that those names are taken, do you have backups or you kind of just twist the words around? Yeah. Well, yeah. So if Yorkville self-storage is taken, we'll, we'll say Yorkville storage units or right. Yorkville, Illinois self-storage. So it, it, yeah, we, we'll just kind of move it around see what the best way to get the branding and the marketing. Once we get to the point where we're not going to be selling a lot of our class A's and we're just going to be holding them and we have a large enough portfolio, then we may rebrand. So say I have, let's say 50 million in just class A self-storage in a pretty specific region, like let's say the Midwest. Okay. Then I may start branding it under a certain name with the goal of either raising investors for that specific portfolio or for the company itself. Gotcha. Um, that's typically what you're gonna see when people start branding all of their facilities under one name is either because they're trying to bring in capital or they're trying to sell out to a larger operator. Got it. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. So on the, on the technology side of things, you mentioned that you're able to, people are able to um, reserve units you know, on their phones and just a clarification question. Is that on any asset class? Is that on the C classes as well or no? Yeah. Okay. So we we'll put that technology stack on class A, class B, class C. So Got it's it. part of the website function, so which is a, a, a part of the, the greater marketing strategy. Right. So we'll, we'll go ahead and get some internet presence on that facility. We'll create a nice website with the ability for a tenant to go in and rent online or even better, you know, give a call to the call center number that's listed there and then have one of our sales reps walk them through. I was just looking at a report um, the other day from one of my partners and we had a great conversion rate on our phone calls. So 85% of the callers that called into our call center were converted into a tenant. That's wow. a fantastic conversion rate. When you look at the comparison to the entire industry, right. the entire industry as a whole is roughly at about a 30 to 35% conversion rate. So as wow. long as you focus on the things that make the most sense, that's where you're going to make the most amount of money. Gotcha. I, and I want to touch on that call center, but a quick, uh, for someone who's just buying their first, you know, C-class self-storage facility, and they're like, all right, I want to implement some, te some technology. I want to get people to do it on their phones. Is there a certain like website or management software or website builder that you use or that you recommend someone uses to get started? Yeah. So on a majority of our facilities, not all of them, uh, we use a product called StoreEdge. So StoreEdge is not only the backend portal where we can look at all the analytics of that facility from our phone or our laptop, but also the front end piece where you have the website, you have the marketing, you have the merchant services that allow us to take credit cards over you know, the internet or over the phone. And then you can pay for a call center uh, as a separate package, or you can hire a property manager to 
um, do the call center side for you. Gotcha. So we, we really like storage. We've looked at some of the other softwares out there. There's easy storage solutions. There's uh, tenant, there is uh, web self storage. There is um, site link. So there's, there's a couple gotcha. options out there. And, you know, if someone's really interested in getting serious in this business, what I rec recommend them do is join all the trade associations and then go to the conferences. So there's two main associations I always recommend people join. It's the self-storage association. You can join not only the national association, but also your state specific one. And then the second one is ISS, which is inside self-storage. And they throw a really great conference each year in Vegas, where you get to not only they have an education track where you can go to all these seminars they have and learn construction or property management or customer experience or, you know, value add, but then they also have the trade show afterwards where you get to meet all the vendors in the space. Uh, it's a really, really good conference to attend, especially if you want to get a super quick learning on the, the industry. Gotcha. That, that's super cool. Definitely beneficial to know those two uh, different ways to connect with people that are local in the industry and, and national too. So that's awesome resource. Yeah. So the last question I have, I mean, I have a million, but just for time's sake is the call center piece you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So is that something you guys use attached to the software you use, or is that something in-house you guys do separate? Yeah. So we started in-house. Um, but when you look at our value, our value where we should be spending most of our time is on acquisitions. So yeah. finding the facilities negotiating a good price and then closing. That's where you're going to make your money, you make your money on your buy. So everything else, we decided to start outsourcing to very competent third parties to allow us to focus on those aspects, including, you know, the capital raising for our larger deals. Oh, wow. So the call center portion we use, uh, a friend of mine has, probably one of the best uh, property management companies I've ever dealt with um, in this size. And it's called the storage manager, a good, good buddy of mine. So he handles all of that. Um, wow. He has his call centers, all his girls that are operating that, and they have a login to our management software. And then the management software is also connected to their calling um their calling software. So everything gets automatically transitioned in. And at any time I can just open my phone and I can see, okay, here's how many calls we got today. Here's how many got converted to tenants and look at all the statistics that are tied to his call centers. Wow. That's, that's so cool. And are, are these, do you know if these call center reps are in the U S or overseas? Yeah, they're in the unit, the U S they're in oh. Illinois, actually. Oh, no way. <laughs> Very cool. 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 So do you have any last things you want to mention about uh, self-storage before we move on to the next section of our show? Yeah. So what I'd recommend, especially if you have guys and gals that are listening to your show that say they're in the wholesaling space or they've just acquired their first or second single family home, you know, you got to realize in storage, everything, you just got to add a zero to it. So as opposed to being able to put thousand dollars earnest money down, it's going to be closer to 10 or $25,000 in earnest money. And as opposed to buying a hundred thousand dollar house, you know, you're going to be buying a million dollar facility, you know, million is on the smaller side. I have found some really, really small facilities, you know, in the 500, $600,000 range, but everything's just got an extra zero, but don't be intimidated by that. 
what I've learned in my career is every time you add a zero onto the investments you're doing, it actually becomes easier to do. It becomes easier to raise money, becomes easier to get debt. It's like pulling teeth trying to get a $50,000 loan from a lender for a single family house, but trying to get a $500,000 loan is even easier. Trying to get a $5 million loan is even easier than that. Um, so what I tell people, and I wish somebody would have told me when I was younger is don't be afraid to, you know, just to reach to the larger size assets immediately. You know, I was always, I was, you know, originally I thought, okay, I'm gonna have to buy a bunch of single family homes, then maybe I could start buying multifamily homes. And once I get a bunch of multifamily homes, then I could start maybe buying, you know, larger commercial or industrial properties, but you can just skip all that and go to the, the assets that make a bunch of money up front. Right. Okay. Awesome. Love the advice. Uh, super cool. So Fernando, now we're going to now move on to the next section of our show, which is the big four. And this is where we ask all of our guests the same four questions. Mm-hmm. So number one, what is your number one habit for success? That's a good one. I got a lot. Um, <laughs> I think perpetual learning and education is going to be probably my number one habit for success. The, the highest return you can make on an investment is investing in yourself. And that means reading books. That means going to conferences. That means going to seminars. It means listening to podcasts like these. The more time you spend on education, the faster you're going to accelerate through your career. So what I always tell people is like, listen, do an audit of how you spend your time for two weeks. It's going to suck, but just do the audit. And what you're going to notice is like spend three, four hours a day watching TV. You know, these are, or you spend an hour, two hours a day taking the train to work or driving to work and just listening to music. These are times that you can fit in educating yourself, listening to podcasts, going to seminars, watching webinars. And that's really what's going to help you propel. Yep. Totally agree with you. And um, awesome to hear that you've taken those things and, you know, fast forward now you're, you're crushing it. So super cool. Uh, The second question I have is limiting beliefs. So limiting beliefs are thoughts in our heads that hold us back from realizing our potential. What's one limiting belief that you were able to crush and how did that impact your life? Yeah, I think in the beginning, it, it's, it's changed over time. So in the beginning, the first limiting belief I had was that I was too young to do this stuff. And, um, you know, that there's no reason that you should be held back by that. The nice thing about self-storage is that it's a team sport and even real estate in general, it's a team sport. It's not all about you. So if you don't have experience in a certain area, bring a team member on that has, I mean, we already do this with attorneys, with title agents, with property managers, right? You can do that with every piece. Maybe you don't know how to develop, bring in a developer and give him the lion's share of the profit just because then you're, what you're going to get is even more valuable than the ownership stake. It's going to be the education and learning behind those people. Plus now you get their experience track record as a part of you. It's almost like branding by association, right? Or experience by association. So that was in the beginning. And then in kind of the middle of my career, a couple of years ago, it was that I didn't have enough money. And that's when I found out how to raise capital and how to find investors with money, you know, OPM, other people's money. And that as a real estate investor, you keep you know, you start seeing these types of returns and you think, okay, you know, this is enough this is not enough, but you got to realize that the majority of the population, they make two to 8% return on their money. So as a real estate investor, you know, I'm, I'm continuously making 30 to 50 to hundred percent return. 
So go out and help some of these other individuals achieve financial freedom by offering them a 15 or a 20% return on their investments. Right. And then for that, you know, getting access to their capital to do those things for them. Usually what it takes is, you know, I always take, I always say there's, there's a triangle of doing deals. You have to have the experience, you have to have the time and you have to have the money. And very rarely does one person have all three. So right, wherever true. you're lacking in that triangle, go out and try to bring that person on your team. Either if it's money, if it's the experience or if it's the time. Yeah, those are, that, that's a super key. I like the triangle, the time experience and money. And mm -hmm. What I found for myself and my, my younger audience is the time is typically what we have and the most of, but it's right. super valuable because realistically time is actually the most valuable asset of them all because there's right. plenty, there's infinite money out there. They can just keep, they keep printing it and there's plenty of people who have experience, but these people lack time. And obviously as you get older, you have less time. So the timepiece, especially for someone young looking to get started, is super big. And just lending a hand to people who have experience. I remember when I was first getting started, I would, I would just meet different investors and just see what I could do for them. I was writing articles for one of them. I'm, and I'm not a good writer. I don't like writing, but I was just connecting with him, learning from him. And I had the timepiece on my hand. So I think, especially for the younger audience that doesn't have the job or you know, they don't have as much commitment as far as family goes. Timepiece is definitely where you can, where you can step in. And that's how I started too. You know, I, I remember going to my first RIA meeting when I was 21 years old and standing up in the, in the middle of the room and just saying, Hey, my name's Fernando Angel Angelucci. I'm an engineer. Um, I don't know basically anything about real estate, but I have a bunch of time on my hands. So I would be more than happy to do anything for you for free. On one caveat, though, you have to tell me why I'm doing the thing for you and how it's going to benefit your business. So it was almost like exchanging time for education from somebody that was a little bit more experienced from me. Right. And I think I don't know too many people that wouldn't take that, take free, you know, labor free help. But and it's not free because you're exchanging something that's worth a lot of money and super valuable to the other person. So it's, it's definitely, right. a, yeah, great, great strategy for any asset class and really any profession that anybody's in. So question number three, Fernando, where do you see yourself or your business in five to 10 years? Yeah, I could tell you exactly. So um, I, if, if, if your listeners out there have not read Traction by Gina Wickman, I recommend everybody stop this podcast right now and order that book. Uh, and then come back and resume because that book is a fantastic book on setting up a framework or a scaffold on how to run a company, especially when it comes to goal setting. So I, I know exactly what my 10-year goals are, what my three-year goals are, what my one-year goals are, I know what my quarterly goals are, and that brought all the way down to what I have to do on a weekly basis and a daily basis to get all those things. So by the end of 2030, uh, I will be a $1 billion company, will be a top 20 operator in the self-storage field with roughly eight to eight and a half million square feet of self-storage. Wow. Super cool. Very concise. And uh, you have that on the head. So, so okay. basically I'm interviewing a future billion dollar self-storage owner, um, top 20, top 20 self-storage owner in the country. So that's, 
That's pretty cool. <laughs> and I, I have no doubt that with your, with your focus, with your knowledge and your drive, you'll, you'll definitely get there. So Fernando, the last question I have is you've dropped a ton of golden nuggets. Is there any last message you want to leave for our listeners? Yeah. So if you guys are looking to get started or have time on your hands, reach out, right? Fernando Angelucci, you can find me online. You can go to our website, titanwealthgroup.com. Uh, you can go to impactselfstorage.com. So feel free to reach out. Uh, we have helped a lot of new investors get started by partnering with them, them bringing deals or them having time on their hand. They want to learn. So we have a bunch of internship programs that we also operate. Awesome. Uh, feel free to reach out. And I guess as a general piece of advice is, you know, everyone's always afraid or think that they can't get a hold of someone that they, you know, want to be or want to be on the same track as, and it's actually a lot easier than you think, you know, so just reach out. If it's not me, if it's another self-storage owner or multifamily or single family owner, that's maybe five or 10 years ahead of you of where you want to be, just reach out and see how you can help them out. I mean, that's the easiest way to grow is by learning from someone else's experiences, not only the good ones, but also the bad ones, right? It's right. easier for you to excel if you don't have to make all the mistakes that someone else did and you can just learn from their mistakes. Right. Wow. That's totally true. Totally true. So I just want to say, Fernando, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure meeting you. This is the first time we're meeting, like I said, and just to hear your knowledge, your experience, and just your ability to, to move quickly is, is crazy. And, and I hear it with your, with your, uh, with your 10 year goal as well. Um, you're, you're, you're a fast mover and no, no doubt that you're going to get it done. So thanks again for coming to the show. Pleasure having you on. Likewise. Talk to you soon, man. Thank you for listening to the real estate investing made simple podcast for more resources or to connect with us further, please visit our website, www.baileykramer.com. We'll see you next time.